Section 18 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. Book 6, Chapter 1. Book Six, containing the second part of the reign of Peter the Headstrong, and his gallant achievements on the Delaware. Chapter One. Hitherto, most venerable and courteous reader, have I shown thee the administration of the valorous Stuyvesant under the mild moonshine of peace, or rather the grim tranquillity of awful expectation but now the war-drum rumbles from afar the brazen trumpet brays its thrilling note and the rude clash of hostile arms speaks fearful prophecies of coming troubles the gallant warrior starts from soft repose from golden visions and voluptuous ease where in the dulcet piping time of peace he sought sweet solace after all his toils no more in beauty's siren lap reclined he weaves fair garlands for his lady's brows no more entwines with flowers his shining sword nor through the livelong lazy summer's day chants forth his love-sick soul in madrigals to manhood roused he spurns the amorous flute doffs from his brawny back the robe of peace and clothes his pampered limbs in panoply of steel o'er his dark brow where late the myrtle waved where wanton roses breathed enervate love he rears the beaming cask and nodding plume grasps the bright shield and shakes the ponderous lance or mounts with eager pride his fiery steed and burns for deeds of glorious chivalry but soft worthy reader i would not have you imagine that any prue chevalier thus hideously begirt with iron existed in the city of new amsterdam this is but a lofty and gigantic mode in which we heroic writers always talk of war thereby to give it a noble and imposing aspect equipping our warriors with bucklers helms and lances and such like outlandish and obsolete weapons the like of which perchance they had never seen or heard of in the same manner that a cunning statuary arrays a modern general or an admiral in the accoutrements of a caesar or an alexander the simple truth, then, of all this oratorical flourish, is this, that the valiant Peter Stuyvesant all of a sudden found it necessary to scour his rusty blade, which had too long rusted in its scabbard, and prepare himself to undergo those hardy toils of war in which his mighty soul so much delighted. Methinks I at this moment behold him in my imagination, or rather I behold his goodly portrait, which still hangs in the family mansion of the Stuyvesants, arrayed in all the terrors of a true Dutch general. His regimental coat of German blue, gorgeously decorated, with a goodly show of large brass buttons, reaching from his waistband to his chin, the voluminous skirts turned up at the corners, and separating gallantly behind, so as to display the seat of a sumptuous pair of brimstone-colored trunk-breeches, a graceful style still prevalent among the warriors of our day and which is in conformity to the custom of ancient heroes 
who scorned to defend themselves in rear. His face, rendered exceedingly terrible and warlike by a pair of black mustachios, his hair strutting out on each side in stiffly pomatumed earlocks, and descending in a rat-tail queue below his waist, a shining stock of black leather supporting his chin, and a little but fierce cocked hat, stuck with a gallant and fiery air over his left eye. Such was the chivalric port of Peter the Headstrong, and when he made a sudden halt, planted himself firmly on his solid supporter, with his wooden leg inlaid with silver a little in advance, in order to strengthen his position, his right hand grasping a gold-headed cane, his left resting upon the pummel of his sword, his head dressing spiritedly to the right, with a most appalling and hard-favoured frown upon his brow, he presented altogether one of the most commanding, bitter-looking, and soldier-like figures that ever strutted upon canvas. Proceed we now to inquire the cause of this warlike preparation. In the preceding chapter we have spoken of the founding of Fort Casimir, and of the merciless warfare waged by its commander upon cabbages, sunflowers, and pumpkins, for want of better occasion to flesh his sword. Now it came to pass that higher up the Delaware, at his stronghold of Tinneconk, resided one Jan Prince, who styled himself governor of New Sweden. If history belie not this redoubtable Swede, he was a rival worthy of the windy and inflated commander of Fort Casimir. For Master David Pietersen de Vrie, in his excellent book of voyages, describes him as weighing upwards of four hundred pounds, a huge feeder, and Bowser in proportion, taking three potations pottle-deep at every meal. He had a garrison after his own heart at Tinneconk, guzzling, deep-drinking swashbucklers, who made the wild woods ring with their carousals. No sooner did this robustious commander hear of the erection of Fort Casimir than he sent a message to Van Poffenburg, warning him off the land as being within the bounds of his jurisdiction. To this General Van Poffenburg replied that the land belonged to their high mightinesses, having been regularly purchased of the natives as discoverers from the Manhattoes as witness the breaches of their land measurer Tenbrook. To this the governor rejoined that the land had previously been sold by the Indians to the Swedes, and consequently was under the petticoat government of her Swedish Majesty Christina, and woe be to any mortal that wore a breeches who should dare to meddle even with the hem of her sacred garment. I forbear to dilate upon the war of words which was kept up for some time by these windy commanders, Van Poffenburg, however, had served under William the Testy, and was a veteran in this kind of warfare. Governor Prince, finding he was not to be dislodged by these long shots, now determined upon coming to closer quarters. Accordingly, he descended the river in great force and fume, and erected a rival fortress, just one Swedish mile below Fort Casimir, to which he gave the name of Helsenburg and now commenced a tremendous rivalry between these two doughty commanders, striving to outstrut and outswell each other, like a couple of belligerent turkey-cocks. There was a contest who should run up the tallest flagstaff, 
and display the broadest flag all day long there was a furious rolling of drums and twanging of trumpets in either fortress and whichever had the wind in its favor would keep up a continual firing of cannon to taunt its antagonist with the smell of gunpowder on all these points of windy warfare the antagonists were well matched but so it happened that the swedish fortress being lower down the river all the dutch vessels bound to fort casimir with supplies had to pass it governor prince at once took advantage of this circumstance and compelled them to lower their flags as they passed under the guns of his battery this was a deadly wound to the dutch pride of general van poffenburgh and sorely would he swell when from the ramparts of fort casimir he beheld the flag of their high mightinesses struck to the rival fortress to heighten his vexation governor prince who as has been shown was a huge trencherman took the liberty of having the first rummage of every dutch merchant ship and securing to himself and his guzzling garrison all the little round dutch cheeses all the dutch herrings the gingerbread the sweetmeats the curious stone jugs of gin and all the other dutch luxuries on their way for the solace of fort casimir it is possible he may have paid to the dutch skippers the full value of their commodities but what consolation was this to jacobus van poffenburgh and his garrison who thus found their favorite supplies cut off and diverted into the larders of the hostile camps for some time this war of the cupboard was carried on to the great festivity and jollification of the swedes while the warriors of fort casimir found their hearts or rather their stomachs daily failing them at length the summer heats and summer showers set in and now lo and behold a great miracle was wrought for the relief of the netherlands not a little resembling one of those plagues of egypt for it came to pass that a great cloud of mosquitoes arose out of the marshy borders of the river and settled upon the fortress of helsenburg being doubtless attracted by the scent of the fresh blood of the swedish gormandizers nay it is said that the body of jan prince alone which was as big and full of blood as that of a prize ox was sufficient to attract the mosquito from every part of the country for some time the garrison endeavored to hold out but it was all in vain the mosquitoes penetrated into every chink and crevice and gave them no rest day nor night and as to governor jan prince he moved about as in a cloud with mosquito music in his ears and mosquito stings to the very end of his nose finally the garrison was fairly driven out of the fortress and obliged to retreat to tinnekonk nay it is said that the mosquitoes followed jan prince even thither and absolutely drove him out of the country certain it is he embarked for sweden shortly afterward and jan claudius reisink was sent to govern new sweden in his stead such was the famous mosquito war on the delaware of which general van poffenburgh would fain have been the hero but the devout people of the new netherlands always ascribed the discomfiture of the swedes to the miraculous intervention of st nicholas as to the fortress of helsenburgh it fell to ruin but the story of its strange destruction was perpetuated by the swedish name of Miggenborg, that is to say mosquito castle end of section eighteen